Welcome inside the Legends Lounge, where baseball VIPs are hanging out and talking about their life in the game. About half the time in the lounge, it's Hall of Fame time, and that time has come again. Trevor Hoffman is going to hang out with us today. I'm pumped to talk to Trevor. He's got the laid back San Diego vibes, but still very much involved in baseball. Super well-spoken, full of stories, probably too many stories when you drop your No Way Jose segment at the end, and you're going to ask him what is one of the... I guess most epic stories in his baseball career. <laughs> he's got he's probably going to be like flipping through pages of a book. Like, mm, let me see. <laughs> Let's land on page 32 here. <laughs> I think so, man. And, you know, a guy that uh, I had a, uh, the, the honor and the, uh, the special situation to play with for just a few months before he got traded for another legendary player in, in Gary Sheffield. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see you know, and talk and hear about what he felt during those periods of time and how that came about. But bottom line, as you were talking about, he he's a special cat, man. Um, you know, a guy that came in as a everyday player, you know, was signed and was probably thinking of trying to get to the big leagues very much like his older brother, Glenn Hoffman, as an everyday player, but always had that incredible golden arm and Obviously, that was the real ticket to not only the major leagues, Scotty B, but the HOF in Hoffman uh, got him to the Hall of Fame. Very true. And that's that's a great point on the trade, too. I'll definitely bring that up towards the beginning. Gary Sheffield and Trevor Hoffman involved in a deal. And, and Gary was already, you know, big time. But but Hoff was not well known. Trevor was not. I mean, right. he had the arm, but like you said, he was a converted into a pitcher and this was before he really became trevor hoffman so we'll definitely get into that on the early side of things trevor hoffman come on down quite simply one of the best all time to close down games, seven-time All-Star reliever, legend in San Diego, played 16 of 18 seasons with the Padres, second most saves in baseball history. Of course, a Hall of Famer, Trevor Hoffman, is in the lounge. Trevor, awesome having you. Oh, and I forgot, most importantly, former O teammate for a minute with the Marlins too, right? Forget about the 600 saves, man. Uh, listen, <laughs> come on now. He got to play with the big O. <laughs> no way. Listen, uh, this is excellent. Trevor Welcome aboard, man. I've uh, I've been so excited to hear your voice and hear your story and, and kind of just reconnect with you. It's been a minute, brother. Uh, and But you know what a big fan I am of yours. Fellas, I appreciate it. Um, always fun to, to help out MLB alumni. Um, but yeah, oh, you got to see the very first two with uh, back in the Marlin days uh, before I got shipped off to San Diego and uh, Gary came back the other way. But uh, yeah, kind of a, like you say, a minute, a minute can be, what you think of it as it can go pretty quick for uh, a life of a, a baseball player. Unbelievable. So first off, t- take me back. Oh, what do you remember? Cause I know it was a, a quick time, period, a lot, but you do. Okay. So tell me <laughs> honestly, because of the fact that Trevor was such an incredible athlete. I mean, he was built really like a hitter. I mean, of course we know the story uh of uh him becoming a pitcher but he did lead his college team in hit in hitting and uh he really wasn't so much thought as an all-star pitcher 
coming through the ranks. He was really thought of as a hitter. When that didn't work out, and uh, the option was to be a pitcher. I'm sure uh, he's going to talk uh, maybe about some of his uh, best exploits, but the bottom line is that he had incredible arm. So I, I think they chose the right thing. It was kind of like uh, my dad, Trevor. I wanted to be the first Cuban in the NBA. And, and he looked at me and he goes, I think baseball is much, much better for you, son. <laughs> and, and my dad was short. I was really took after my mom's side where the tallness comes. He's about 5'10 and I'm 6'4. And he looked up at me and goes, son, um, I think you should stay with baseball. And uh, of course, this is all in Spanish because my dad's English is not very good. And I go, okay, Papa. And, uh, and I think uh, the pitching part ended up being the great thing. But you're also, you were also a great teammate. Uh, what was the most memorable thing for you in that 93 season for us? Yeah, I, I think uh, your dad really had a lot of foresight for sure. And because NBA would be another animal, that's for sure. But, uh, oh, oh, you had such a presence in our locker room. Um, I think because of your Cuban descent and the Cuban community um, behind you so well that uh, that was obviously a natural fit, but uh, just in the clubhouse, you always, you know, were the guy that was willing to kind of speak to the media and kind of be the leader in the clubhouse. You know, we had Brian Harvey, we had uh, Jack Armstrong, some other guys, but uh, Brian didn't like to say too much. Just like to go about his business, but uh, Oh, was, wasn't afraid to kind of take the reins and kind of guide people through what it meant to be a big leaguer. And so I appreciate that. I enjoyed watching that from afar. Uh, and then when I got to San Diego, I was able to kind of see Tony Gwynn do the same thing. So I was pretty lucky to have veterans around me. Um, the Marlin team in 93 was incredible. And we got a bunch of misfits in general from a lot of other organizations. Yeah, no doubt. I agree. Um, amazing coaching staff led by Renee Latchman uh, at the helm and just a, a great ensemble of staff. And, you know, I just, there's, there's a lot of memories, just it being my first, first experience in the big leagues, first time baseball in South Florida. And, you know, for a, a rookie and a, a young kid to feel like this was something bigger than what it was. It really was uh, a great experience to, to be a part of that in South Florida at that time. Trevor, were you pissed when you were traded from the Marlins or I'll even double down and say, did it bother you more or surprise you more when the Marlins dealt you to San Diego or when you were taken by the Marlins in the expansion draft? I mean, I know I've talked to players who say, hey, I was wanted, so that's good. And, of course, for you, the story played out beautifully. But what were you thinking back then? Yeah, great question. Um, pissed is a little bit of a strong word. I, I'd say disappointed in a sense that, you know, South Florida's on fire. You know, they, they were packing that Joe Robbie at the time uh, every game. And, you know, again, it goes back to a rookie having the opportunity to get a Mazda car deal. So I'm driving around in someone else's car for free. I, I thought – Everything was fantastic, right? Um, and then to be traded first time where I felt like, yes, you're wanted, but maybe you weren't as thought of highly in the place you're at um, was a little bit of a blow. And knowing the situation I was going into, again, it, you go from a packed house, excitement around the franchise, uh, everything new to a fire sale in San Diego, even though it was going to be in my backyard. And you know, I had to kind of get talked off the ledge by my old brother, Glenn. He goes, hey, Trev, like, this is going to be a great opportunity for you. You're going to get to go to a place where you know you're going to get to play. You're going to stay in the big leagues. You're going to get your reps. 
And ultimately that organization is going to grow out of their situation. You're going to be a part of hopefully the, the future being maybe a core piece. And so he was right. Um, 15 years later, you know, I'm, I'm leaving San Diego, but uh, to be able to say you're in major league baseball in one spot for that long is beyond mind boggling. So, and for it to be in San Diego and Miami before that, I think I lived a, a pretty good, pretty good gig. I'll tell you what, for me at, at that point, when it happened, I was really surprised because of the way you were developing the, the talent that, that I could see, you know, that you had with strong arm, the fastball in the mid nineties, the changeup, working with a veteran, Brian Harvey, which by the way, uh, I want to kind of, this is where I'm going to ask you here about Brian, but it was two young greats that were blossoming, blossoming at the same time, Gary Sheffield and yourself. Um, but Harvey was coming back from an injury and he was an all-star, you know, out West when he came to us. Um, and he had such an incredible mind. What was the impact that Brian Harvey had for you when, in the time that you were with the Marlins? Yeah, Brian was a great, great asset to have, uh, that stage of my career. Um, and I, and I liken it where push it back six months to a year my first big league camp is in Cincinnati. And so I get a chance to, to get befriended, maybe take under the wing, um, a guy by the name of Rob Dibble. And so Dibbs is, um, kind of showing me the ropes a little bit, uh, as far as, you know, hair on fire, throw a hundred miles an hour, um, not afraid of anything type of thing. And then you have Norm and Randy, a part of that group to go to a soft spoken, country boy and Brian who was equally as successful and just doing it the complete different way. And so I think it, it, it brought levity for the roles to me. It's like, you don't need to be crazy fire guy throwing hundred miles an hour and the other end of it, you don't need to be super quiet, devastating split, still throwing mid nineties, be who you are, be what, be the best you can be um, with what your talents are. And so I think that was, probably the biggest lesson I'd learned uh, not only how to prepare, like it was like clockwork. You look up at the clock and go, okay, it's eight 15. This is where Brian should be at. You look over. That's where he's at nine, 10, you know, he might be going to the bathroom or he's coming in from working some stuff with a trainer. Like it was such a routine that I got a chance to see and how successful he was and how dominant he was that I realized trust, trust the routine, trust the process and when there's ups and downs or little blips, don't worry about it. Know that it, it's worked in the past and try and find that consistency. And, oh, have a badass entrance song. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't hurt. <laughs> no, that everyone remembers and knows. And so take us through that whole story of when it came about. And also, was that always a thing? Like, did everyone always have their entrance music, like, really worked in and a big part of you know who they were persona wise obviously like you took it I think you and, and what Mariana Rivera I think for closers just took it to an absolute another level in, in terms of of course who you both were reputation wise stuff wise and all of that but also it's just like the songs were just one with who you were when you entered the game right well if you if you play hell's bells and you go out and you blow five stages you suck and so it's not gonna be very much fun <laughs> but uh 
here's here's the deal. I, I remember getting to San Diego and coming out to wrap it up by the fabulous Thunderbirds that really didn't intimidate anybody. And so Steve Finley, our center fielder, when he came over from Houston, said to Charles Steinberg, one of our uh, front office folks, said, hey, Greg Olson had this song that he came into and it really got the fans excited. Why don't you guys think about coming up with something for Hoffy? And Chip Bowers was a gentleman in the entertainment division that came down with the song Hell's Bells by ACDC and said, what do you think? I said, well, I'm not partial to any other song and I don't really like coming out to wrap it up. Um, I'm all, I'm game for whatever you guys want. And I remember the first time they played it in 98, that three quarter or a quarter away through the season, it kind of caught the crowd off guard with the bells ringing and then coming out of the bullpen without any fence, just right there on the left field line. And I'm going, this is pretty cool. Um, have the say, blow the say the next time. And I got to make a decision. Is it the song's fault or is it my fault? We, we obviously kept uh, the entrance song, what it was. It turned into something larger than life. And certainly when you don't have quite the energy one night, you always could rely on getting a, a nice boost of energy from uh, the, the whole entrance uh, ensemble that they put together. No doubt. No doubt. It's interesting. You mentioned that Scotty, because these are the two greatest closes in the game in Mo Rivera who had Enter the Sandman and Trevor, both of them really not the big raw, raw kind of guys. Let's say like a, like a goose gossage, you know, aggressive, you know, personality kind of closers, but they both had these exciting, great songs coming in. But I do want to ask you, Trevor, a little more about how it was when you had to truly make the transition from hitter uh, and everyday player to pitcher. I know your dad pushed both sides and I'm sure that was a, great idea on, on on his part and it worked out what at what point did you pretty much say okay uh, I got a good arm I got to give this a try yeah um it was it was pretty obvious in low a ball Charleston West Virginia when I had 25 airs at the break and I was hitting 210 I'm like yeah I'm not I'm not climbing the ladder too fast and they got this guy by the name of Barry Larkin playing shortstop at Riverfront that is pretty good himself so a career change going from all that failure to the flip side, where if I can maybe throw a strike or two, uh, I might be on the other end of the success rate. And so it worked out um, pretty good for me in a sense that the rapid ascent, um, making the transition in 91, and then in the expansion draft in 92, basically with uh, the Marlins happened within a year and a half. Um, man, it was a, it was a, it was a whirlwind. And, really embraced the whole process. I got lucky having uh, a manager in Frank Funk my first time out that I knew nothing about mechanics. I learned a little bit uh, along those lines with Mike Griffin, a pitching coach in AAA uh, with the Orioles for a long time, but he was our, our, our A-ball pitching coach. Shot me some of the basics. I get Frank Funk the next year. He says, I'm not going to inundate you with a lot of mechanical stuff. Just go out and throw the ball, kid. It worked. Got the double A. I was in triple A by the end of the year. And, you know, I didn't know a whole lot. I just tried to repeat a delivery, tried to throw strikes. Um, and fortunately, it worked out. I did have a hiccup where I kind of screwed up my shoulder after uh, the, the, the league went on strike in August 11th, 94. I come back not throwing as hard, but was able to develop a changeup out of that. So, I mean, I just have been pretty blessed guy for the most of my career and things have worked out. And, uh, it's always it's always been very fun to have challenges, but to kind of rise above it. Have you been approached by any players who have thought about 
making the change. I mean, there's always stories, but it's not like it's super frequent. I mean, I can think of some of the names that come to mind. I mean, Kenley Jansen's a big one. He was a catcher and I wasn't hitting much either. And I mean, that guy looks like he's a closer, but has, has anyone either no come up no to you really, and asked you for advice about yeah, that? No one's or? really come up and asked, but like Kenley, you mentioned, I think Mo might've started out in center field. I know that he shagged yes. like a true center fielder in Yankee stadium all the time. I mean, he was super athletic. Uh, Troy Bursaville was a catcher with the angel system and, and converted. Um, I know that the Padres have had a few guys that have, have tried to make that conversion. We took Christian Bethencourt, who's revitalized his career in Oakland as we, uh, as we sit. Um, but yeah, for the most part, I just try and impart, some of my knowledge in a, in a sense that I didn't know a lot and what I didn't know didn't really hurt me, which is a good thing and figure out what, uh, what output you kind of need to go to is you're in the pen. You need two pitches, three at the max and, but be really good at two and you're going to have some success, I think. Well, the thing that I remember most about, uh, about big Trevor is, is, uh, number one, he had tree trunk legs, like a running back. And I mean, he was built again, like a hitter. Uh, not so much the tall and lanky like some pitcher, then the torque that he created with his windup. And that actually, I think, helped him so much with the changeup because he gave, gave you a lot of big legs and arms, and then here comes this changeup. So um, I think that was so dynamic. I go back to Mo Rivera and his cutter. You both basically developed develop one key pitch that you could throw at any time and, and basically make the hitters chase. Um, what was the difference for you there? I mean, was that something that you were going after and how you developed that particular great pitch in the changeup? I did. And I, I kind of lucked out finding it, but uh, you know, you, I couldn't imagine being Mo like I, just how devastating is, is his situation where he has one pitch. Everyone knows exactly what's coming. I still had to do a little trickery with a fastball changeup, but he knew what you knew what he was going to throw and he still dominated people. That's how good it was. But I, I think in today's game where we're, kind of getting to hear a lot about like robo umpires and things like that. I don't, I don't think the changeup will be as affected as much as say people that develop a true breaking ball or a, a sharp slider where it can be in and out of a strike zone and how the, the, the box, you know, views it as strike or a ball where the changeup will almost be more in that tunnel for a longer period of time. And then the velocity just is gone. So I think, you're going to start to see more and more people probably develop a changeup because of the success that they'll ultimately have within the strike zone that uh, it's heading towards. Yeah, it's a good call. And you see a lot of swing and miss in the zone off the changeup right. versus, you know, getting a lot of chase from say a sweeping slider, which we see a ton in today's game. I always think with changeup to field pitch. So for you, and I've talked to many others, especially starters, where sometimes and, and you often see it in the scouting report, right? He's got two pitches developing changeup. And if he can, <laughs> then he'll be a legit starter, right? It's like I, I've read that scouting report a thousand times over. And then also even talking to them when they make the big league, sometimes they're like, Oh, I was feeling that changeup early. For you, feel pitch, changeup. Did you feel it most of the days? Clearly, like were there times when you came out and you didn't actually feel like you had a, a grip on the changeup the way you wanted it to? Yeah, really. Another great question is in a sense, it was by default. I tried to keep it simple. I tried to let the grip kind of take care of the pitch and still have the mentality of throw it like a fastball because that's what I wanted the hitter to see. I wanted them to see the same arm speed. I wanted them to see the same strike in the, in the mound. I wanted them to see the same finish. 
But when it got halfway to the plate, the, the pitch starts to take over and it just starts to fall off a table. And so that was the deception I was trying to create. And because of that, I didn't have to worry too much about feel because I wasn't really throwing to spots. I was throwing to really right down the middle of the plate. And if it did something, it did something that was great. But I was trying to get that timing mechanism off of the hitter. So, and, and you know, that, that part seemed to work. I think that's what helped selling it for me is that I tried to hit. I realized how hard it is to hit the slider, let alone a changeup, let your eyes deceive you. And so I trusted it. It's like, hey, you know, it's, it's not easy to hit. And if you have something that can disrupt timing, it might work out for you. I tell you what, with all that's changed in baseball right now, I mean, you've got guys throwing 100 miles an hour uh, with really good breaking pitches, sliders and splitters. Uh, you can still go back to the fundamentals of baseball. And if you ask anybody, the best two pitches in the game are still a well-placed fastball and a dramatic change of which you had both. Um, especially if they're thrown like you did with the same arm speed and same uh, delivery in the socket for those pitches, if you will. Um, at what point did you really feel I'm this dominating closer? I am one of the best closers in the game right now. Yeah, I don't know if I, I ever really let myself think along those terms because, as you well know, oh, that the minute you think you got something figured out in this game, it's going to reach up and grab you and, and humble you pretty fast. So I kind of always felt like I was arriving. I always felt like I had something to prove. And, um, you know, that mindset allowed me to kind of show up every day, prove yourself again and, and not get too high, get too low. But when the opportunities did come along, you know, keep, keep the wind and the team's sails, the momentum and uh, try not to screw it up. So and you can be real with us here. San Diego, pretty small city compared to some of the other baseball cities. And especially nowadays, I mean, they have one major pro sports team and they are, they have had, you know, a more talented, successful run lately too. So with all that being said, I mean, going to Padres baseball games is a pretty big deal. When you're walking around town, how often are people coming up to you and, and do people allow you ever to pay for meals and coffee and all that stuff? You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's funny. Um, San Diego is, I mean, we've made it our home. It's, it's just a, a special place for me. The, the vibe of the community just fits my, my vibe, we'll say. And you're right, like two-thirds of the country was asleep whenever I would go in. And so you had maybe two or three beat writers that would follow the team during the regular season. And you go on the road, you might have more of the other team's beat writers in the, your locker room than your own. So it was super low key in that regard too. So uh, as far as the pressure factor, I didn't have any anywhere near the, the bright lights in New York city, like Mariano had to deal with. So it was a great place to pitch. It was a great place to hide to a degree. And it was a great place to um, make home. And so all those factors were in a hall pass. You still had to go out and perform. I mean, we still had the juggernaut North of us that uh, was real, but, you know, it was, it didn't seem like it was, it was pressure driven. And so that, that just fit my persona and my personality better than other places. And um, I never wanted to get tripped up, like I mentioned, but uh, I never took it for granted, but it was a great place to play. Hey, Trav, I just got to ask you about the, the late, but great Tony Gwynn and, and what it was like playing alongside with him for so many years, like you did was his impact on you mostly as a pitcher or as an overall great professional that you ended up becoming? A little bit of both. I mean, Tony's perspective of pitchers 
was incredible. Was, you know, he was the first one really to bring video to Vogue. You know, he would he would take high eights, you know, where that's one reel passing it the other reel of pitchers and he'd splice his at bats and he'd be looking at it on the plane like he was a perfectionist when it came to that. Um, and where it's gone to now, it's it's driving force for a lot of things in our game. Uh, but he should get credit for being the inventor of all that. But it, he didn't rely just on that part of his game. I mean, he worked tirelessly in the cage. He would always be taking early batting practice um, just to continue to refine his craft. A true professional. And then, you know, you talk about, you know, what I mentioned earlier about your your influence in our, our locker room in Florida. It was very similar in San Diego. You, you, you talk about a small media market to a degree. Well, he'd know exactly what someone was saying on uh, the radio about him or about the team. And when they'd come to the field that day, he'd let them know, like, hey, I don't really appreciate where you're headed. Or, you know, I think you need to do a little bit more look, you know, research on, on what you're talking about. It was it was incredible the detail that he would he would have in his life with the game of baseball and just constantly loved talking about it. And so I learned a lot from him. I remember being on the team bus uh, and, and he was talking to a, a younger teammate. Uh, someone in my my peer group and and how look at if you have the opportunity to get multiple years in a deal do it it's security it's it's takes a little bit of the pressure off you don't have to continue to prove yourself on it maybe on a year-to-year basis and I took it to hard I, I think I, I played the majority of my career in San Diego with guaranteed years and it it just allows you to freeze you up and so it was uh, maybe advice intended for another teammate but uh, I definitely took it to heart Hey, Trevor, tell me about life after your playing career. I know you've done a lot still in baseball since that time period and a good chunk of it with the Padres from special assistant to team president, upper level pitching coordinator, senior advisor for baseball ops. I know you had a little bullpen coach action with the uh, Great Britain team in the World (laughs) Baseball Classic qualifiers. So, you know, what's it been like for you post-playing career, both on and off the field, as in in and out of baseball? Like, how's life? Life's great. You know, I think what that tells you is they can't find a good spot for me. I keep screwing it up and I'm I'm moving around. But uh, (laughs) all in all, uh, I'm I'm really lucky because, you know, you retire and for the majority of players – that's it. They don't get the opportunity to still be around a, a major league organization. They don't necessarily to get to speak with some of the active players that are, are playing now. And so having that access, having that opportunity to kind of continue to relive the game is a blessing um, away from the game or away from the field. We'll say I've, I'm, I was heavily involved in my kids amateur life uh, going to the high school games uh, that they were playing in uh, collegiately. I would try and make uh, games on a couple different coasts while they were playing. And so uh, I got a chance to be dad, which was, you know, the, the, the plan in itself, I guess we timed it right with when we had our kids that would be done by the time they, they got a chance to see what dad did and maybe realize he was a big deal at one point in time and yet still kind of follow them around and watch them progress in, the, in what they love to do. So uh, life's been good just living in San Diego, waiting for the June gloom to lift and uh, still be a part of it in ways that I can. And Trevor, a little two-part question here. You get your youngest is part of the Padres right now uh, in uh, in the lower minor leagues. You got to be proud about that and I and in his development. And obviously that also means that you're following, you know, today's player and players. Um, he's a hitter 
But uh, I wanted to ask you, what do you see with the game, especially on the pitching mound in today's baseball? Yeah, um, well, you know, we're starting to see the advent. Not so much the advent, but I just think the communication from, we'll say, the old-time scout that could watch with his eyes and give you, yeah, that, that's got a good lively fastball. Well, that matches up with, you know, a high spin rate for someone that didn't really play. And so it's just marrying the two differences from eras to be able to speak common language. And so I think the athlete has gotten bigger and stronger and faster. Um, we certainly, from a pitching standpoint, we see more velocity in the game um, across the board. I don't think guys throw any harder. I just think the technology is one where, you know, they would radar the pitch at the plate that would have been 92, 93 miles an hour, where now they're picking it up out of their hand. That's, hand speed at 100 miles an hour. So I'd have a hard time saying Nolan Ryan didn't throw as hard as Aurelis Chapman or some other big throwers in the game. Um, I just think that they come up with that number in different ways. And so um, the information is there for the hitters. I think, again, it goes back to that strike zone. The strike zone is a box. Um, They're very good at recognizing what's in the box and what's not going to be in the box as the umpires. The umpires are challenged a little more than they used to be in our era. And they know what is just off the plate most of the time or what's considered a strike. And so hitting can be hard because of the stuff that's getting thrown at them, but it can be maybe a little bit easier because they, it's not arbitrary. You're not seeing Levon Hernandez getting uh, six, seven inches off the plate. Like most of the Braves staff did when uh, we saw some of the, some of the playoff games. Tell me about it. Going to Fulton County stadium. I know I had to spread the plate by like uh, three inches on each side. It was, uh, it was really ridiculous. <laughs> they, were, they, were able, they were able to hit their spots. They hit their spots three, four inches off the plate. Well, that wasn't why they got me. Uh, they got me because they were damn good. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And if you give them that spot, right, like Trevor's saying, they're, they're going to hit that spot. Exactly. You're going to keep going to it <laughs> until they call it otherwise. So who's your favorite closer? You know, who's your favorite closer to watch right now in, in this game? You know what? I, I, I'm, I'm partial to Craig Kimbrough. I, I think what Craig and, and Kenley, for that matter, I think this era of what they've done in, um, in their respective leagues and uniforms, they've just been extremely dominant. They're climbing up the ladder in statistics, but uh, they've been mainstays for their teams, you know, year in, year out. And so uh, I love the way they pitch, the way they've sustained their stuff. Edwin Diaz in, in New York has been overpowering the last year and a half. Uh, he seems to have figured it out and been able to handle the New York lights. And he's been a big part of, of what the, they've been able to do this year. So um, there's some great closers out there. Um, San Diego and Taylor Rogers has been fantastic to watch. He's been very helpful in closing games down on the West coast. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of guys out there doing their thing. Josh Hader, you know, the list keeps growing. That's for sure. Last thing I want to do before O drops the hammer on his big finisher is hello, hello, yeah, take you back. <laughs> so to when you were a kid, because O mentioned how you're a sick athlete, but I did read that you weren't allowed to play football or participate in wrestling or a sport like that. Yep. I guess right because of um, a kidney situation. So what what can you tell us about it? Yeah, I was uh, six weeks of age, and I got a blood clot in my right kidney, and it shriveled it up, and the doctors had to take it out. So it was probably a pretty scary procedure for my parents to have to deal with. I obviously didn't know any better, but uh, the outcome was there was no 
disease that was going to affect my other kidney and it would grow a little bit bigger to compensate for some of the activity that uh, was going to be needed uh, to survive. But uh, in doing so, I didn't want to take a chance and playing a contact sport where, you know, you get hit from the side in football or, you know, you take a kidney punch in boxing or, you know, something like that, that would ultimately damage or hurt the, the one that I have. And so I wasn't allowed to play those contact sports. And you tell somebody basketball is not a contact sport. I mean, I got to play that, but I, I think I got beat up in basketball more than I would ever would have in football probably because, you know, I appreciate the big athlete. I wasn't much of an athlete coming out of high school. I think I graduated at five, six, 150 pounds. So I wasn't, I wasn't a dominant force in about anything. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it was, it was good to have that done. I lucked out not having disease, but uh, the contact sports were, were a no-go. Yeah, Trevor, there was a guy uh, that came into the big leagues who had around 155 pounds by the name of oh, uh, Pedro Martinez. Uh, I think he developed pretty well, <laughs> and so did you. So, hey, brother, it's time for No Way Jose with my main man, Trevor Hoffman. And as long as you were around, uh, you probably have some pretty good stories. In fact, I'm sure you have uh, our former teammate charlie huff stories remember him smoking in the shower uh <laughs> back in the day and uh, charlie would say like just get a couple puffs in buddy but uh, uh give me something strange something weird that that happened a player or yourself uh give me a good one i know you've got it in there and with all the years you played buddy what you got so i'm gonna give you my one charlie huff story and all then i'll go to the other one but so you talk about you talk about in the shower smoking. Well, a lot of the young bucks that would have to run their poles or run for distance. And, you know, we'd go onto the field in Melbourne at the time we weren't in Jupiter, I don't think. And um, we'd run our stuff and we come back in and they're tra Charlie would be on the stationary bike smoking a smag. And we go, Charlie, it's kind of counterproductive here. And he goes, Oh, you try, try smoking and ride the bike. It's much harder. So uh, we kind of got a giggle out of Charlie riding the stationary bike, smoking a cigar, let alone be in the shower. But uh, uh, my, my, my funniest story, I think, all time in baseball was we had kangaroo court in San Diego. Wally Joyner was the, the, the judge and jury and executioner, if you will. And on the box, it's like you do not tamper with. And I said, I, I, that, there's a BS um, court case in there on me and I'm taking it out. Sure enough, I take it out. They don't see it. They, we have court, doesn't get read. They're like, this is BS, Hoffy, you took it out. We know you did. And so they rigged it where they pretended to shoot a video of someone going in, wearing my jersey, taking the case out, giving a thumbs up like I got it and going away. And I, I refute that. I fight that in court. I win. But then the following couple weeks, they mic up a couple of my teammates while he did and got me to confess on camera where the camera was in the first base dugout where they're mic'd up and they get me going, yeah, I got Wally. I went into that kangaroo court box and I got the case out. They're never going to get me. And they decided to play that next court cases that we had. And I had to pay double the fine. No doubt. That's classic. I love that. <laughs> kangaroo court was the best, man. Kangaroo court. That's a sting operation too, right there. <laughs> a lot of people involved. <laughs> Brother, that was like, um, mission impossible type stuff. They've got going on you there. They were waiting and baiting you. Uh, they had to go like, hey, dude, by the way, did you really do that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Did you uh, tell us about it? <laughs> they got you, man. That's good stuff. It was classic. I wasn't too happy with the two teammates that that were a part of that. But uh, I was I was caught dead to right. I paid my fine and had a few expletives. So it added to the fine. But Kanker Court's the best. Absolute best. 
Okay. So this is, this is how I want to finish Trevor. Cause I, we just have one more minute and a bonus question. I could be completely off here. And if so, we'll probably just like cut it out. But, okay. um, did you have any rituals when you landed in the city? Um, exercise bike is any of this ringing a bell when, when you would travel kind of uh, no not really no. like so so you're flying a lot right yeah what what did you do did you do anything to kind of like routine wise to make sure you were warmed up or not you know so stiff from sitting on the plane <laughs> I, i'm saying like exercise bike is any of that ringing a bell where's he going not? i'm not sure where you're going we had our good times mm. in the back of the plane at thirty thousand feet i know that but uh, <laughs> i don't know about an exercise no bike. i thought i and i could be off with 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 who it was but i i do remember like a long time ago and i always thought about this like um reading about how like baseball players you know you're traveling a lot and you just don't you, know, you build up like lactic acid right you get right. kind of stiff when you're sitting down same spot on a plane always um so like you know, get to a city exercise bike stuff like that kind of your basics but i didn't know if it was you i figured i threw it out there because how often am i getting to interview trevor hoffman and you know we can always just cut it out anyway you know scotty you know what <laughs> i think it was dustin hoffman that's what it was he had to be really active for his movie the only thing that would have maybe mirrored a little bit of the, the, the stationary bike is when i was in milwaukee we kind of as a group in a bullpen group we would do our running and our exercising calisthenics or whatever and we had a player that had some bad knees, bad back, and couldn't participate in all the running, but was sent inside to do the stationary bike. And so what we would do, or this one time that he would come out when we, as a group, got ready to go run, is the golf cart, flatbed golf cart, would come out with a stationary bike on it. And I made the gentleman get on the stationary bike, and a clubby would drive him next to us as we were running, and he would do the stationary bike. <laughs> so I didn't want him to not feel a part of what we were doing. He shall forever remain nameless. The ultimate teammate. Okay, good. Then we won't cut it out. I'm glad I asked it just to get the story out of it. Right. Oh, Hey, you know, I don't have any fear. I don't hold back. So, so there was uh, two stationary bike stories. Uh, Charlie Huff smoking a cig on one <laughs> and this other teammate uh, being giving a hall pass. For go. some reason, I knew it would be a big part of this conversation. So there we go. Trevor, you're the man. <laughs> really appreciate the time. It was an absolute pleasure. And I got to tell you one thing, man. I'm, I'm always proud of him, proud of uh, Trevor, uh, two of the greatest in the game at that closer level. Mo Rivera and Trevor Hoffman uh, were also represented the game as all-stars, their community, their families. Um, very, very proud of you, brother. Uh, you deserve it all. Oh, I appreciate the kind words. Thank you. Scotty, enjoyed talking with you too, man. This is a, this is a good catch up. Yeah, very much so. Oh, in the cell phone world that we live in, that last story from Trevor about the <laughs> golf cart with the exercise bike. <laughs> yeah see that that would not have been kept a secret i don't, I don't think you no. can pull off putting a player on an exercise bike on a golf cart and having him keep up with the squad that's running and not have that hit social media so no it very was well kind, done on that story <laughs> very kind of uh, uh my guy there trevor hoffman to 
to kind of keep the guy nameless. But uh, you're right. In this day and age, you do not <laughs> just stay nameless, do you, Scotty? No. Somebody's going to capture you, whether it's an usher in the stands as that is going on. It's going to be like, OK, oh, wow, this is interesting. <laughs> I'm going to post this on my uh, little Instagram. But um, Trevor was full of good stories. And, and yeah, I just like, you know, his appreciation for the game and respect of the game. One of the things that I'm really big on is not only great players uh, and people that played in major leagues, but people that, you know, represent and personify the major leagues during their years. And then after, you know, their tenure and, and how do they represent the game? Because uh, it, it's, it's important to, to have that, you know, respect and honor for the game. Here's the guys in the hall of fame. And he spoke on Scotty about how, he was always worried that, you know, something was going to happen that kept him kind of juiced up to, to be as great as he was. So very, pretty impressive. Yeah. Self-motivated, right. And driving yeah, through sure. despite such success, just <laughs> sick, kept <Success>. trucking. <laughs> yeah. Sticky success. And I mean, he was, he was a special ball player, really, really appreciate his time. And then yeah. as we crack open this week in baseball, I, I've got a few for you. We've got a little more time. So I want to start actually with Save City, June 28th, 2009. Mariano Rivera earning his 500th career save. Yankees completed a three-game sweep of the Mets. That was Subway Series time. And he became the second pitcher to reach the milestone. And we know who number one was, Trevor Hoffman. Exactly. First two yeah, 500 career saves. Two. So the longevity and durability because we know keeping a relief pitcher, I mean, any pitcher really healthy for a long period of time to be able to rack up numbers like that, you don't see it often. You've basically barely seen it, right? I mean, it's, no. it's Mo and, and, and Trevor, the ones That's known. It. Yeah. And, and it was great that in, in, in our piece there, he, you know, he brought up Mo so, so positively and, and, and knowing that, uh, you know, and also knowing that Mo did it with basically one pitch. So Trevor, you know, did it with two. Uh, my goodness, these guys were were in an elite uh, level of play. I don't want to sidetrack too much, but I do just want to throw this out there because I've been on this campaign for years. I do think that from my um, baseball fandom and just love of the game and, and watching this man, Billy Wagner, pitch a lot. Yeah, I think that he was a hall of famer. I really strongly feel that way. I mean, he struck everyone out. He pitched in my mind long enough. I know there's not much on the postseason track record, but that's a hall of famer to me in terms of what he was able to do almost like ahead of his time. I mean, you see more of the Trevor Hoffman types nowadays where it's a guy just blowing velocity at you. You can't even make contact. So anyway, I just wanted to sidetrack there for a moment. I, I think that's a, that's I'm a big on that one. one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I can't, I can't, I can't blame you on, on Billy Wagner. We might have to get him on at some point. I know he would be happy to do so. Great dude. Fun interview. Anyway, a couple more to throw at you. July 2nd, 1995, a little this week in baseball. Hideo Nomo, leading the National League in strikeouts, becomes the first player from Japan to be selected for the Major League All-Star Game. You faced Nomo, right? Yes, many times, many times. Um, you know, this, this was something special because of the fact that his trek uh, to the major leagues and, not, and was um, not expected. I mean, the best way I could put this is that if, if he had failed, if he had failed coming to the Dodgers and the way that he did come to the Dodgers, by the way, Scotty B was by retiring 
from Japanese baseball. Uh, his agent, Ken Nomura, was able to find a loophole in their template contract that all players in Japan, all players, actually, foreign players. And he, interestingly enough, he found it because a few years before, I had done the same thing. In order to come back and to come back to the major leagues and play for the Marlins, I technically retired from playing Japanese baseball. What does that mean? So in the contract, if you wanted to go back to Japan, you could only go back to your team. This, for me, it was the Sabu Lions. So he remembered that about my deal. And he told Nomo, if you retire from Japanese baseball, you can go play anywhere in the world. You just can't, when you come back to Japan, you just can only play for the Kintetsu Buffaloes, but you can actually retire and go play somewhere, which subsequently, obviously, Scotty, they changed that contract in Japan after that, where <laughs> nobody could just retire and go play in, the, in, in whatever league, namely the major leagues, namely the Los Angeles Dodgers, who had their eye on him for quite a while. It was a incredible, like, 007 Mission Impossible type of a risky thing to take. And if he had failed, um, the embarrassment, I don't even think he could have gone back and play in Japan. So I'm telling you, a book, uh, I mean, a, a movie one day will be written. He's very uh, kind of a closed guy, very shy. So I don't think that's the only reason it hasn't happened. But one day that story was uh, is going to be told properly. I didn't realize the connection you had to that story. So yeah, you it's crazy. I didn't you realize it until just a few years ago when Kendall wow. Moore, his agent, tells me that he runs into me at a winter meeting and he goes, you know, you helped me get no more to the man. I go, what? But I did face him. He was a beast. He got me early. Then I figured him out and I got him quite a few times, took him out completely out of a stadium one day, you know, and uh, but him and I are good friends. And, and I just think that I was so happy that he had that success. And where are they now before we say goodbye? This one's a little more current. So, you know, sometimes we're digging back in the vault. Like I know last week we were going to a player in the 70s. I didn't know him. <laughs> oh, but, Gene Locklear. Yeah, Gene Locklear. This, this time we're going with Luke Scott, nine-year playing career, outfielders, BH, 2005 to 2013. Had some pop in that bat. Sure now did. lives on a 22-acre compound near De Leon Springs, Florida. Uh, he's got the whole farm, cattle, goats, chickens, pigs, a ram, an assortment <laughs> of vegetables, fruits, wintergreen squash, sweet potatoes, tomatoes, make me hungry, peppers, sugar cane, various stone fruits. And he is in the process of building an earth roamer with his brother Noah that they will yeah. use um, on elk hunt. So, I mean, he is really all in on nature and he's got a 100%. ton of land and the earth roamer will also feature solar panels so he's doing it all down in florida making good use of all the land and the good weather down there you know he played for for us here uh, in tampa for for a handful of years after his years with baltimore orioles by the way he had mad pop um definitely did but he was always a different sort in a good way uh just no doubt an earthy guy, you know, looked at things differently, got to know him pretty good. And I am not surprised that that he's doing the, the Grizzly Adams thing. there out there in the, in the middle of Florida. And, uh, 
and he's really close to nature and and just uh, spirituality. So good for Luke. By the way, he's a big time bow hunter, kind of like uh, our boy uh, Chipper Chipper Jones is. So pretty cool stuff. Luke Scott has a ram. He has a, a ram, ram. <laughs> yeah, not a Dodge Ram, by the way. This is a a real ram, as in live. <laughs> Yeah, don't wrestle the Ram, but wow. No, no, he might, though. Him and Noah, they're uh, they're both big, huge dudes. They are. <laughs> they they're big try. dudes. So Yeah, they are, dude. Yeah, I wouldn't mess with the Ram, though. I mean, I just, you know, I, I'm reading casually through all the animals on the farm, and then it's like, oh, and a Ram. I, I don't, <laughs> I just don't recall seeing that very often about farms in the United States. So, yeah, go, Luke. <laughs> Keep running it with your brother, Noah. That was good a good Luke. one. And a fun day with trevor hoffman and that's how we'll close things out so trevor thank you so much for joining us we appreciate mr hoffman's time and and he was fantastic and that's what we do every week on the lounge bringing in a former player half the time about a hall of famer we appreciate all of you that have been listening up to this point about halfway through the season the lounge is closed see you next week The Legends Lounge Podcast is brought to you by Major League Alumni Marketing. Hit us with questions or comments at legendslounge at mlbpaa.com. Check out our memorabilia at mlamauthentics.com. Later, Legends. Legends.